have a seat. Thank you, Kim, for reading for us. Uh, my name is Alex. Uh, Cassie mentioned she and I have the joy of uh, leading this little Jesus community together. And um, if you've been around the last couple weeks, you know that this past Wednesday started a season called Lent. If you didn't grow up in maybe a liturgical church tradition, you might be unfamiliar. Like, that's when the Catholics don't eat meat, right, on Fridays? They get by with fish, right? Um, there's a little bit more to it. Uh, one of the ways we say it is, you know, Jesus spent 40 days in a wilderness, um, tempted by Satan prior to going to, into his ministry. And so similarly, we see Lent as this season of preparation, this season of preparing our heart for the celebration that is Easter. And so for 40 days, we commit ourselves to fasting, to repentance, to self-denial, so that our hearts can be prepared to truly celebrate what Easter is. And so um, as we are journeying through Lent, we're going to, to key in on some of the stories of suffering throughout Scripture. That Lent is this time to remind us what's truly important and how we process through the evil of our world. And today we are starting with the story of suffering in the book of Job. If you're new to the Bible, it's spelled like Job, J-O-B, uh, but it's pronounced Job. And so let's begin this conversation just simply reflecting on how we might read Job responsibly. So it's important for us to think through how we engage with the biblical text at a responsible level. Because the Bible is this ancient library of scripture written by humans under the divine inspiration of God. It's divine in its origins, but it's also deeply rooted in human history. And so as we jump into Job, there are a few things we need to keep in mind. First, Job is written as Hebrew wisdom literature, which might mean nothing to you, but the Bible nerds in the room are like, ah, I gotcha. This means this work kind of steps away from Israel's story and explores broader themes, like how do I live well in God's world? Or what does it mean to live wisely? Or what can I hope for on a personal level? Wisdom literature is an exploration of truth, but it doesn't approach truth as data or as a set of events. It approaches it as a mystery to journey into. And now, maybe this might break some of your minds, but there's actually no real evidence whether Job is a historical figure or an invention of the author. And lots of people disagree on this point. Now, I want to be very, very clear. People who love Jesus deeply and believe he died and rose from the grave, who hold orthodox Christian views, come to different conclusions on this subject. So whether you think Job was a historical figure or not is not the litmus test for whether you're a good Christian or not, to be clear. And honestly, I think the text is probably a Hebrew thought experiment. I think it's someone going, what if? How would we explore this moment of suffering? It's similar to the parables told by Jesus. It's a story that is bursting with truth. It might not have happened, though. So for those of us who grew up around scriptures, 
what I just said might bother you. Um, in American evangelicalism, we're, we're taught to kind of approach the Bible like a theology reference manual. So when suffering comes along, we thumb our way over to Job and we're like, okay, now I'm going to get my answers to why people suffer. And then you read Job and you're like, oh, there's not very good answers in the book of Job. It's like trying to learn about the French Revolution from Les Mis. Or about World War II from Captain America. Like, you might pick up a little bit of insight, but these stories are not about translating or communicating historic events. They're about the people involved. And likewise, the, the book of Job is not an explanation of why people suffer or a theological framework for how do we grapple with it. It's about one man wrestling with God as he suffers. It's about one man wrestling with the pain that's been inflicted on him and trying to grasp with why. Job is laid out like a three-act play. It opens with a prologue which introduces us to the title character Job and sets up the main conflict of the story. And then there's act two, which is the majority of the play. I'm, I'm calling it a conversation amongst friends because that is exactly what it is, 34 chapters of back and forth dialogue. And then the play ends with act three where God speaks. And in the closing moments of this play, of this literature, God responds to what has been said about him. And candidly, I think that ending will leave us with far more questions than answers. We should not make the mistake of thinking this is all about Job because it's not. It is about all of us. When suffering crashes into our life, we are prone to ask some of the exact same questions that Job will ask throughout the play. Is God just? Does God run the universe by that justice? And maybe most hauntingly, why is there evil? Why is this happening? Why me? Why them? Why? No matter how much or how little suffering we've experienced, these questions live in our bones and animate our doubt. They are the questions that our ancestors asked, and they are the questions our great, 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 great grandchildren will ask too. They are the questions that live at the heart of the human experience. And with these questions, we want easy answers, don't we? We want simple solutions. We want a logical three-step explanation of why people suffer. We want answers that can fit in a tweet and we can tuck into our pocket for when a bad day comes. But to be clear, the book of Job does not give easy answers. It does not give simple solutions. And I have no intention of offering quick solutions either. I want us to be a community that knows how to protest the evil of our world, to stubbornly refuse cliches and trite sentiments. I want to be a community that holds on until God speaks, that demands him to answer for himself. The profound invitation of Job is that when we wrestle with God, we discover that he is closer than we ever imagined. 
So with that, let's explore the tragedy of Job with Act 1, the court of God. Here's the opening line of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. A couple of things of note about our main character. Job is not an Israelite. He is from a land called Uz, which archaeologists are like, we don't know where it is. It's like the lost city. (laughs) Second, he is blameless and upright. Now this is significant language in the Hebrew Bible. For an Israelite, this would be like a hyperlink or an Easter egg referencing two familiar stories. First, the story of Noah, and second, the story of Abraham. Both Noah and Abraham are called blameless and upright. The significance of this is that Job is not just an ordinary guy. Job is the best of us. Job is a a once-in-a-lifetime type of guy. Third, Job was incredibly wealthy, generous, successful, and loved. And on top of that, the author goes out of his way to say that none of this went to Job's head. Like, despite his wealth, despite his influence, there were no skeletons in the closet. There was no hidden sin. He was righteous before God. And that's exactly what God says about Job. The setting then switches to, I almost picture this control room in heaven. The court of God, if you will. There, God is depicted as a king surrounded by advisors and aides. Now, I don't know about you, this is kind of a side note, I've long pictured heaven as this place of glorious isolation. God's just like up there on a throne and no one else is there. But the Hebrew scriptures constantly testify and speak to a crowded heaven. At least the way the book of Job depicts it, God is sharing the responsibilities of running the universe with aides and advisors. And the moment we pick up with is almost like a weekly staff meeting with all the people who are running the universe. Like someone's in charge of Jupiter. Someone's got to give a status report on how the oxygen levels on Mars are going. Like there's this whole ecosystem of aides and advisors around God. And then that staffly, or weekly staff meeting excuse me, is interrupted by an uninvited visitor. The Satan, or the hostile one, crashes the party. And God singles out this uninvited guest asking, what have you been up to? Satan says, oh, I've been roaming the earth checking on things for you. God says, have you noticed Job? There's no one quite like him. He's honest and true. And then Satan says, Job is only honest and only true because of the way you have spoiled him. Wealth, health, family, and riches would make anyone a believer. I'm paraphrasing, of course. This scene is meant to play out like a courtroom. I imagine the law and order theme plays in the background. (laughs) Satan is like this attorney challenging God's policy of rewarding the righteous. His basic argument goes like this. How do you know Job is really 
righteous. He has wealth, health, family, success. What if he's just worshiping you because he gets all of those things? And then the Satan offers a wager. I bet if you were to take all of that from him, he would curse you. And God says, all that he has is in your hand, but do not harm him. Cue the discomfort. Satan says, you should take everything from him. And God says, no, you want to ruin his life, not me. And God lifts his hand of protection on Job's life. This is a bizarre scene that makes us all deeply uncomfortable. Like, I'm good with the Jesus stuff, but do I actually have to come to terms with God going just one day like, you're on your own, buddy? Like, is that a part of the faith? And to heighten the discomfort, why God does this is never explained. So you're, if you're looking for me to, like, ease the tension, I, I don't know that I have a way to. God never gives an account for why he allows this to happen. So I, I won't be giving a defense for God's action, but I do think there are a few things that might help with this tension. The first is, this is the only instance of such a wager. Now, I don't want to discount this scene, but we don't build theology on a singular text. Like, I have yet to find someone who's making a case for the divine gambling of God. Like, there is not a theology out there that's built on God making wild wagers. We don't build theology on single, single texts. We build it on the life of Jesus and the breadth and library of Scripture. And no other passage features a wager between God and Satan. Second, often biblical authors will record the events of heaven because they've had a vision. However, the author of Job doesn't mention such a vision. Often, the biblical authors will say, I was taken, I saw. Joe, uh, John and Paul are good examples of this. So, most likely, this is the result of the human imagination imagining what might be going on in the throne room of God. And they're applying their cultural realities to what might be going on. Third, this passage, as well as the scriptures as a whole, takes seriously the existence of one who opposes God. And it's important to note it's Satan's idea and his follow-through that ruins Job's life, not God's. And for this particular scene is not the point of the story. Let that settle in for a second. This particular scene is not the point of the story. It's likely whenever I mention Job at the very beginning, you're like, ah, the wager between God and Satan. I know this story. And the fact that that's the only thing that lives in our imagination, I think says more about us than it does about the text. I think it exposes a set of assumptions about how we think our lives should go and what God should do for us. I taught on this at length last week, but our world is dangerous and we have a very real enemy. God works to care for us, but we are not promised safety. In fact, we're promised the exact opposite in this world. 
you will have trouble. And Job is the poster child for trouble, isn't he? In just a single moment, Job's life falls apart. His businesses are systematically dismantled. Everything he's worked for crumbling in a moment. His children, his family perish in a single heartbreaking moment. Every future he imagined for them taken away, just like that. And then that courtroom scene repeats again with Satan taking Job's health, inflicting him with pain and chronic suffering. And Job's response is to take the traditional actions of mourning. He rips his clothes, he shaves his head, and he falls before God. The tragedy of Job is so potent because he is so innocent. Don't miss it. Like, Job is not the average Joe. He has created jobs and commerce. He has treated his employees well. He is a family man who adores his children. He avoids injustice and shuns evil. He worships God, and God is proud of him, and yet his life still falls apart. Here's the uncomfortable reality of growing up. As we get older, we discover there is almost no correlation between the wrong we commit and the suffering we experience. We discover that the wicked do in fact prosper, that the manipulative does get the raise, that the lie did preserve the relationship, the outburst got results, the high school bully ends up being successful. And even more uncomfortably, those who do right often experience immense pain and suffering, maybe even more suffering because they've done right. We do well and we get knocked down. We tell the truth and we still get passed over. We live rightly and they still die. We discover that nice guys actually do finish last. And certain suffering makes sense to us. Like a body falling apart after decades of hard drug use, that makes sense. But a, a, a body falling apart months after birth doesn't make sense. The suffering of innocent life does not make sense. And at first it's surprising. When you experience it in your teenage years, you see suffering for the first time. It's shocking and surprising and you lie to yourself long enough to go, the world's not really that bad, is it? And then you enter adulthood and you discover, no, it's, it's actually worse at times. This type of suffering first surprises us and then it just makes us angry. Job is doing everything right and then everything goes wrong. And this is the suffering that leads Job to wrestle with God. And that wrestling takes the form of 34 chapters of dialogue. <laughs> 34 chapters of dense Hebrew poetry. I uh, went to a Christian university for my undergraduate. And uh, so I was a Bible nerd surrounded by other Bible nerds. So our idea of a good night was sitting in someone's dorm room talking late into the night about things that are way above our pay grade, waxing eloquently about things we couldn't possibly understand. And I imagine what's about to transpire is something very similar. People who are just like waxing eloquent about things they don't understand. Act two, a conversation among friends. This is 
chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite. They made an appointment together to come and to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word. For they saw that his suffering was very great. What will follow is 34 chapters of dialogue. It starts with Job complaining, and then one of his friends responds. And then Job responds, and another friend fires back. Job gets petty, the friends get pettier. I imagine this almost like a play in which um, each character steps into the spotlight and delivers their epic monologue before stepping back and someone else stepping forward. This is how the next 34 chapters go. It's like one after the other delivering long lines of dialogue. And because it would take a long time for me to recount to you the entirety of their conversation, I'm going to give you the spark notes if you're okay with that. Um, you all have access to a Bible, so I encourage you to read it maybe later this week. Job's friends take a position and they argue from this idea that the universe operates on a strict principle of retributive justice. Their theory is that if you honor God and you do good, good things will happen. But if you are foolish and dishonor God, he will punish you. And so for like 30-some chapters, they argue from this position. And the friends look at Job's tragedy and conclude, you're clearly guilty of some kind of wrongdoing. Obviously, you wouldn't be punished in such a way if you didn't have something secret going on. But throughout the entirety of those 34 chapters, Job defends his integrity to the point he's angry with his friends for accusing him of such a thing. Job agrees that bad behavior deserves punishment, but he knows, he knows, he knows he is innocent. And he begins to speculate that God must be punishing him without any cause whatsoever. And his friends passionately disagree with Job's depiction of God. Job's entire life is falling apart and his friends are committed to changing his theology. Eugene Peterson writes this about Job's friends. Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. At first, we are impressed that they bother with us and amazed at their facility with answers. They know so much. How did they get to be such experts in living? More often than not, these people use the word of God frequently and loosely. They are full of spiritual diagnoses and prescription. It all sounds so hopeful. But then we begin to wonder, 
why is it for all their apparent compassion, we feel worse instead of better after they've said their piece? Some of what Job's friends say is technically true. But that technical part ruins their whole case, doesn't it? They offer easy answers without personal relationship and intellectual data without intimacy. Job's life is ravaged and his friends treat him like a, a, a specimen, slapping labels on the appendages of his life. And to his credit, Job rages against these generalizations, this theoretical drivel. Job refuses to be comforted by their idyllic hot air. I want to be clear. I I do think that the story of Scripture does offer some insight into the problem of evil. But the book of Job is not about that. The book of Job doesn't answer that question directly. Rather, it demonstrates the wounds that can be inflicted by well-meaning people who are quick to give answers and slow to pray. Job's character progresses as his friends continue to offer just different thoughts. And if you get a chance to read Job throughout this next week, I would encourage you to read it in one single sitting. Do not chunk it up. Because something that's really interesting about the book of Job that maybe we don't often think about is in, in terms of Scripture There are many inaccurate statements said about God throughout the book of Job. Like Job starts in such a low place and ends in a lower place that he makes many inaccurate depictions of God. He progresses as he mourns, laments, and honestly struggles with his suffering. So if you add Job to your daily reading, one day you might read Job's heretical statements about God, and the next you might walk through his moment where he's repenting of those statements. At one point, Job will say in chapter 13, though he, God, slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. A beautiful expression of trust, but then Job lashes out at God in chapter 27, blaming God for his calamity and suffering. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Job even goes as far as calling God wicked, saying that God enjoys the suffering of the innocent, chapter 9. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. That is an untrue statement about our God. Or take the most well-known verse from the entire book of Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a line we have heard echoed in tragedy, crisis, and funeral. It is a beautiful statement, but is it actually true? You and I read the prologue, and we know whose idea this whole thing was, but Job doesn't. Job thinks that God ruined his livelihood, that God killed his family, that God ruined his life. 
And Job will hit such a low point that he cannot distinguish between God and the devil. Chapter 16, God has torn me in his wrath and hates me. He has gnashed his teeth at me and my adversary sharpens his eye against me. Job has gotten to such a low point that he thinks God is like Satan. And if we don't take the evil one seriously, we will blame God for the evil of the world. Now to be very clear, God is involved somehow so he doesn't get off the hook so easily. But we know that none of this was God's idea or God's initiative. And on this side of the cross, we know that God had always planned to defeat death. But, but Job knows none of this. He's stuck in a situation of suffering. And all he can do is say, God, why? And at one point, Job turns from defending his innocence to demanding that God speak for himself. And as the play continues, Job's prayers and lament become more desperate until he has one singular request for a moment of encounter with God. He says, if I can just have one moment, if I can just have one moment with God, I know he will hear my case. And this brings us to Act 3, where God speaks. In chapter 38, God grants Job a hearing. He shows up in a hurricane and takes Job on a whirlwind tour of the earth. God pulls Job close and begins to display the vast complexity of the universe he has designed, operates, and maintains. And I imagine God speaks with a gentle, fathering voice as he begins to ask Job questions. For 38 chapters, it's been all about Job asking questions, but now the questions are turned back around, and it's God asking things of Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever called the sun to take up the morning shift or the moon for its night watch? Have you mapped out the ocean floor or set the tide to its annual rhythm? Have you ever traveled to where the snow is dropped or the lightning is launched? Do you know anything about the ecosystem I created, its delicate balance with its hunting lions and its scavenging ravens? Do you know when the goats give birth or when a bird is ready to fly? Do you know the balance of the universe and are you ready to take the reins of responsibility? Every time you and I walk outside, we are given a glimpse into the infinite complexity of the world our God designed. And at this overwhelming display of power, Job is humbled and once again ready to trust God. At the end of the story, God will end up chastising Job's friends for their inaccurate descriptions of him, and he would he will end up celebrating Job. He will end up saying, the person who said the worst things about me, but the one who was willing to talk to me, there's something about that that God appreciates. The tragedy of Job is that we think this is about Job's day in court. 
He is accused by Satan. He's accused by his friends. He gives his defense. But this book is not about the trial of Job. It's about the trial of God. It's about the trial that begins every time you and I suffer. When suffering breaks into our life and we say, God, you did this. It's a trial that has played itself out in every one of our minds. Every human who has ever lived asks the same three questions. God, are you just? Do you run the universe by that justice? And most painfully, why is this happening? These are the questions that live at the heart of our human experience. And yet God has yet to give any one of us a straight answer. He just invites us to come close and to know him and to wrestle with him. He invites us to look at the face of Jesus, the one who is willing to suffer as his ultimate defense. Hope is not born out of easy answers or trite cliche. Hope is born out of the knowledge that God who created the unfathomable universe sees our suffering and he knows our pain. God never answers our why with an easy answer. He answers our why with a person. Worship team, would you join me as we kind of wrap up? Thanks for your patience as I unpack an entire book of the Bible. Um, I appreciate it. As we come to the end, I want to just offer four pastoral encouragements as we think about what, what does Job, what does this one man's suffering have to do with me? I think the first, and, and maybe most importantly, the book of Job honors genuine wrestling and anger. Job, who arguably said the most heretical and cruel things about God, is celebrated for his willingness to wrestle honestly. Even as Job towed the line of blasphemy, if not crossing that line altogether, God was pleased when it was turned into prayer. The takeaway from the tragedy of Job is that God honors Job's honest wrestling. When he doubted, he took it to God. When he was angry, he pounded into the chest of God. When he was agonizing, he complained to God. God is a father who wants us to pound our fist into his chest and rage at the injustice of the world. We are invited to wrestle with God, to say this is not how it should be. Job refuses to take suffering lying down. He refuses Say, this is just how it goes. Listen, we live outside of the garden and outside of redemption. The world is dangerous. And I apologize, and I'm really sorry if you grew up thinking it was something else. The world is dangerous, and Job is not okay with that. God is not okay with that. You and I should not be okay with that. You and I are not to take evil in gentle serenity. Ah, oh, this is just how it is. 
we are invited to rouse ourselves in lament, prayer, anger, and action. This is a place in which your anger turned heavenward can be sacred, an invitation to know the heartbeat of our God. The second thing is that there are no easy answers, so stop settling for them. We so desperately want stock answers with a clear and easy to understand logic. In philosophy, the answer to why we suffer is called a theodicy. It's an explanation or a theory as to why evil exists. And across the history of the church, there have been wide-ranging theories that approach the question from different perspectives. And to be clear, I do think the scriptures offer some answers, but they're not easy, they're not simple, and they're not present in the book of Job. The reality is when suffering comes, no answer is going to satisfy. I mean, why did two teenagers open fire at a Super Bowl parade? What answer gives that meaning? What answer makes that okay? Why does the, the new nonprofit or the new business, something someone stakes their entire livelihood on, why does that fail? Why does an earthquake shatter the lives of an entire town, loved ones lost? Why does cancer take a loved one far too soon? Why, why, why? And there just aren't easy answers to these questions. So don't settle for easy. Continue to wrestle with God. Third, with humility, we embrace the mystery of it all. And I know that sounds so eloquent, like, oh, mystery. I just tuck that in my back pocket, too. That can, in many ways, be an easy answer. When people are like, oh, God just works in mysterious ways. I don't think embracing mystery is actually easy. For digital natives who have access to Google 24-7, not knowing something absolutely kills us. But at the end of Job, when he's taken on a whirlwind tour of the earth, God is attempting to show Job how much he doesn't know. And if there's anything we can learn from our brother Job, it's to humbly admit, I, I don't know. I think embracing the mystery sounds a lot like saying, I don't know a lot more often. And if I've ever sat across from you in a coffee shop and pretended to know all the answers, I, I genuinely apologize. There's so much that I need to say I don't know about a lot more often, but it's a lot easier to work in cliches and tropes than it is to say I don't know. Final thing we can learn, and this is probably the most difficult, is simply to exercise trust. There is so much we don't know. Let us cling to what we do know. So if I can give you a few things that you do know. We know that in Christ, God has defeated death, freed us from sin, and is inviting us into a future. 
a future where evil, pain, suffering, rape, genocide, evil, and tragedy are no more. We know that as we look at Christ, we look at the God who didn't leave us to suffer alone. He joins us and suffered immensely that we might know what he is really like. He is not cold, aloof. He is the man on the center cross. That is the good news. That is what we know, but I do not know when this present age will end. But I can know the character of God. I can read of his gentle response to Job. I can read of his kindness to Hannah or Ruth or Naomi. I can read of his forgiveness of Peter and Paul. I can hear the stories of people in this community, stories of his love, of his goodness, and of his gentleness. I can be invited once again to know his character. We might not know why, but we can know him. That's the invitation of Job, to let go of our need for why and just simply learn to know him. If you would, stand with me. response to what we've read in Job, we're going to respond in, in one of three ways. Corbin, sorry, I'm stealing your thunder. We're going to respond in one of three ways. We'll have the opportunity to come to the table of the Lord. His blood poured out for us, his body broken for us. An invitation into the mystery, an invitation to once again say, I don't know, but I'm going to show up in trust and faith once more. Second, the invitation is to maybe find someone to pray with, someone to, to honestly wrestle with God through the things that you're working through. And finally, we'll pick up that song again, an invitation, even when we find ourselves broken, to lean into God. So before we respond, we're going to pray a prayer of confession, an invitation to be reminded there are ways in which we can all continue to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and be reminded he is quick to forgive. The prayer of confession will be on the screen. Let's get ready to pray it together. Prayer of confession, there it is. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. As you're ready, respond to the invitation. At the table, we know that we are invited as the family of God to experience the feast of God. If you're not a part of the family, the table is an invitation to know the beauty of Christ. And at the table, we declare Christ.
Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Let's respond together. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.